Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Looking for a new true crime podcast because you're all caught up on coffee and cases? Look no further because we are about to introduce you to one we know you'll love from our friend Vincent. His podcast is called Gone Cold and focuses on cases in the state of Texas. Here's a little bit about the show from Vince himself. Texas is best known for the scorching heat, longhorn steers, and incomparable barbecue. Beyond Big Bend and Big Trucks, however lies something dark, big crime. Hi y'all, my name is Vincent. Join me on Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, as we dive deep into the facts and theories of one of the 20,000 unsolved Texas cases each week. From the mysterious 1974 disappearances of Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julie Mosley, collectively known as the Fort Worth Missing Trio, to the orange Texas abduction and murder of four-year-old Denaria Finley in 2002. To hear those and nearly 200 other stories of unsolved homicides and missing persons cases, subscribe to Gone Cold, Texas True Crime, wherever you fulfill your podcast needs. So, sleuthhounds, in an extremely unfortunate turn of events, the episode that Maggie and I struggled with technology on for three hours last night to record was when I went to edit it today completely erased. So instead of crying about it, and we may have done a little bit of that also, we just made an executive decision. For your true crime fix this week, we decided to share with you an episode from our Patreon. Now, don't worry, Patreon members. We aren't going to share all the content that you gain access to by being a Patreon member, but we did decide to share an episode today as a glimpse into what our Patreon has to offer. Each month on Patreon, we post three mini episodes. Some are spooky, some are funny, some are stories about Maggie and me, but they are always entertaining. Then we post one full bonus episode each month, like the one you're about to hear. We keep our full episodes focused on mostly solved cases with a few paranormal thrown in for good measure. We switched our focus for Patreon because we decided that we would never want to make a profit from telling a story that deserves widespread public attention and still needs to be solved. So if you like what you hear today, then you will love all of the other content available on Patreon, and we would love to see you over there. So just head on over to patreon.com forward slash coffee and cases, all one word, or click the link in our show notes to get started. We have several levels available with the top tiers also getting quarterly swag boxes in addition to the content. We are also super excited to welcome our newest Patreon members from this past week. You and everyone who reached out to us on social media last week wrote us a review. We'll all get your shout outs on the show, but I want to wait until Maggie and I are back together since obviously the love is from both of us. Now, without further ado, here is an episode from Patreon, our coverage of The Mothman.
Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, Maggie. I figured I would do a case that has creeped me out since I first heard about it around 20 years ago. Oh, okay. I know. It is the story of a creature that terrorized a small community in Ohio that Hmm. is only about an hour away from where I grew up, right outside of Ashland, Kentucky. So so only about an hour away. Yes. Yes, it did. I was like, this is coming after me. (laughs) So where I grew up in Ashland is part of this tri-state area of Kentucky... Ohio, West Virginia, all together. Mm-hmm. So this town that is in Ohio that has ties to this creature is about an hour away from Ashland. But that community is also tied with a community in West Virginia. Okay. So the word crossing borders in mm-hmm. this creature tale. Now, the community that I have ties with is Gallipolis, Ohio, because when I was growing up, I used to ride all the time with my granny and gramps when they would go on their flea market adventures. Oh, I did that. I love mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would always tag along with them. And this town of Gallipolis is tied with a West Virginia town called Point Pleasant. And the creature that I'm speaking of is now known as the Mothman. So Mothman has ties to both this Ohio town and the West Virginia town? Yes, because the two towns are connected. In ways that I'll talk about here in a second. Now, I will go ahead and tell you in full disclosure that what we know of the Mothman is only one small part of the phenomenon that happened in this community in the 13 months that they were plagued by sightings. Hmm. So a lot of people know about the Mothman because of the movie Mothman Prophecies that came out in 2002 with Richard Gere in it. But that film and the information in this episode actually comes from a book called The Mothman Prophecies that was written by John Keel. But John Keel's book was actually written in 1975, Hmm. eight years After the events that it chronicles. So this all is all based on true accounts. 
Keel himself was a journalist and a UFOologist. UFOologist? I want to be that. UFOologist? Yes. I don't know, but I want to be that. Yeah. He investigated the claims that were made by people in Point Pleasant. And it was a role that he took very seriously, Maggie. He, in fact, when he was researching all of these sightings and people telling him about the Mothman... And UFOs. We're going to connect the two. He took it so seriously that he didn't even discuss with anybody what people told him. Hmm. So he decided, you know, if somebody feels comfortable enough with me and they trust me enough to tell me what they saw, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell anybody else because I don't want to spread like rumors or make it into this big to do where people are going to hear claims and then say that they saw the same thing too when oh, really they I didn't. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he decided to keep his sources completely confidential because if he's going to verify that what was happening was true, he wanted to know that stories were truly corroborated. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and just, it, yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't public knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that the story of the Mothman goes beyond the creature itself into stories of UFOs, men in black, and far more strange happenings. So if you decide to read his book, and let's say you only believe a tenth of it to be true, you will be terrified. scared out of your wits. And what I'm going to relay is just a small part of that story. Well, I'm excited. Okay. So I'm going to start with a little bit of history of Point Pleasant. That isn't, well, it isn't pleasant. But back (laughs) in 1774, there was a Battle of Point Pleasant. And that was the first and only battle in what is now called Dunmore's War, which took place between John Murray, who was the governor of Virginia, who also held the title of Lord Dunmore, hence Dunmore's War, and the Shawnee and Mingo warriors from the local Native American tribes. Because Lord Dunmore actually shared ownership of the land with the Shawnee and Mingo, but had decided to negotiate with the Iroquois on the ownership of the land all the way to the river without even consulting the Shawnee and Mingo, whom he co-owned the land with. Okay, so the Mingo tribes must have been pretty prevalent because isn't there a Mingo County, West Virginia? I don't know, but um, right around where I grew up, there is Shawnee University. There's a Mingo County High School. Mm, it's like so, next, yeah, it's like on the Pike County side. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, both. So the tribes had fought Dunmore's militia in an attempt to gain back control of the land that rightfully belonged to them as well. Like he couldn't just unilaterally give it to the Iroquois. But when it looked as though the militia would defeat the tribes, they had signed a peace treaty. Okay. So a few years later, in 1777, the chief of the Shawnee Nation went on a diplomatic, peaceful visit to Dunmore and was taken hostage. Hmm. The chief's son and two others from the tribe came to visit the chief, and they were also taken hostage. While they were held captive, 
Governor Murray's men heard that some of their militia had been killed by some Native Americans in the woods, and upon hearing this news, even though they have no idea if the people who killed their friends were Shawnee or not, they murdered the chief and his son and the two others from the tribe who had come to visit him. Sounds a little bit like the Hatfields and McCoys. Mm-hmm. The legend goes that Murray's militia had unloaded eight muskets into wow. the Shawnee chief and that he had stood strong throughout all of it before collapsing. And as wow. his life was passing out of him, Lore has him stating the following, quote, I was the border man's friend. Many times have I saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with you but only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refused to join your pale-faced enemies with the Redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me and have murdered by my side my young son. And for this, the curse of the Great Spirit rests upon this land. May it be blighted by nature's. May it even be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the pain of our blood end quote that gave me chills mm -hmm. and this is known as the cornstalk curse because cornstalk was the americanized version of the chief's name and this mm. is happening right on the land of point pleasant where this creature later comes to haunt mm. and over the years it does seem quite obvious that this area has been cursed with misfortune more than most, especially given the small population. Um, some of those events were uh, between 1966 and 67, um, which we're going to talk about. And those are just one of those events of misfortune. The first indication that something was wrong happened on November 1st, 1966. At the Point Pleasant 1092nd Engineer Battalion Headquarters, when a National Guardsman who was on duty saw something perched high up in a tree. It was in the distance at the edge of the guard base, but he was sure he saw it. A creature. That was the only word for it because it looked like a bird. But even at that distance, he could tell that it was the size of a grown man. In awe of what he was seeing, the guard went to go find somebody else to look at the creature, to verify that it wasn't just a figment of his imagination. But by the time he returned with someone, the thing was gone. And even though this guard eventually came forward with what he saw, at the time, he just kept quiet about it, chalking it up to it being a mirage, right? A shadow of the night that was playing tricks on him. Yeah, it could have been like another animal that just a bear or right. something. And from a distance, you just thought it was a bird-like thing. Exactly. Unbeknownst to this guardsman and seemingly unrelated, the very next day, November 2nd, 1966, around 7.25 p.m., a man named Woodrow Derenberger, who was a traveling sewing machine salesman, was traveling just outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is about 50 miles from Point Pleasant. He was headed south. Can we just talk about 
can we bring back traveling vacuum salesmen, traveling sewing machine sh- sewing machine salesmen, traveling encyclopedia salesmen? I know. Like, yeah. I want make it to, to where do I don't have to that go to a store. Good. Come to my yeah. house. Yeah. Yeah. So he is leaving Parkersburg, heading south, and he sees this car fly past him. But that wasn't what startled Darren Berger. What startled him was the low-flying UFO Hmm. that was chasing after the car, which was a black Cadillac. This UFO looked like a long tube with a bulge in the middle. And what happened next is what rattled him to the core. He watched as the object slowed down from chasing the car to slowly come to a halt turned sideways, blocking the road. It was about 35 feet long, so it blocked the entire road, and nine feet wide. So Derenberger had to stop his vehicle. Wow. He sees a door on the side of the craft open, and a man got out. Stop it. Yes. So keep in mind, this story that Derenberger will later tell, he tells a story to a journalist, and he tells it sane and straight-faced. Like, he even said in this interview with the journalist that if he heard somebody else tell this same story, even just the day before he himself had experienced it, he would have said the person were a nut. Wow. So Woody, he has his car pulled off to the side of the road, like the driver's wheels are on the road, the passenger wheels off the grass, off the shoulder. This man who got out of the craft walked over to the passenger side of the car and asked Derenberger to roll down the window. They proceeded to have, yes, a man, a man. They proceeded to have an entire conversation. He asked what Derenberger was called and where he was from, and the man said that he was called cold, like burr, it's cold. Mm -hmm. The man looked towards Parkersburg and asked what that place was called and whether people lived there. Derenberger told him the name of the town and that it was a city, it was the center of living, of business, and cold responded that his people call those a gathering. And all of this is super creepy, but I haven't told you the creepiest part yet. The whole time Derenberger said they were having a conversation, he was the only one speaking. Cold was communicating via telepathy. So you're telling me Mm-hmm. This man is driving south from mm-hmm. selling his sewing machines. Yes. A UFO is chasing a black Cadillac and it blocks yep. the road. Yep. We don't know why it's chasing the black Cadillac, no, but we it do is. not. Mm-hmm. So f- out from this UFO walks an alien mm-hmm. who Named looks cold. like a human. Yes. Whose name is cold and communicates using telepathy. Yes. And he wants to know what the gathering down the road is called. Yes. Okay. Here is an audio clip of what Derenberger said about the interaction. And this is from the later television interview that he did with the journalist. And as far as I can understand, 
This was all mental. There was no spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was he appeared very courteous and friendly. And after I talked with him a while, he told me he would see me. He said, we will see you again, and he left in his vehicle. Now, and Mr. Dernberger, for the sake of our television audience here, uh, the, the words that you used, cold, cold would be like... Uh, Cold is his name. This is how it sounded to you that his name was Cold. Yes. And That's the the word gathering was like uh, we would know together or something like this. Yes, that's what he meant. That was the impression that he gave. And he did not move his lips nor utter any sound whatsoever. He he talked with you in in telepathy then. That was right. That his lips did not move he uttered no words at all but you talked i mean you he did yes i talked he told me he told me twice that i could either talk or i could think which either would be better or easier for me how okay. creepy is that well now mhm mhm okay so as all of this i'm going to use air quotes communication conversation was going on the ufo had actually risen straight up in the air and it was hovering above the scene so that as other cars passed by cars who would later say that they saw Derenberger talking with a man on the roadside didn't see the craft so nothing seemed amiss to them Okay. Mm -hmm. well. they, yes, they only saw their headlights light up a tall, around six foot man, 30 to 35 years old, 180 to 185 pounds, dressed normally in a dark overcoat. And the whole time, Cold was grinning widely, and he kept his arms crossed with his hands tucked under his armpits. Like if you've ever seen... um. Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. like Mary Catherine Gallagher, like hands tucked up high. But he seemed to Derenberger to be polite. I mean, he said that polite, friendly, curious. And Derenberger told Cold that he was a traveling salesman. And Cold responded that he was a searcher. Of course. And that, and as he turned to leave, he said to Derenberger, we will hmm. see you again. And that was it. So do we think um, then that he is connected with Mothman? Yeah, well, yes. Uh, Keel does in his book. This is one of the okay. things that he talks about. And by the way, the spot where this happened, where Derenberger encountered cold, as the story goes anyway, is the exact spot where Cornstalk was murdered huh. and left his legacy of the curse. So some people have wondered if these two seemingly distinct instances are actually related. Interesting. The next oddity that happened around this area happened on November 12th, 1966. When five men were digging a grave in Clendenin, West Virginia, they saw a huge shadow 
like on the ground, only to look up to the sky to see something flying over them. It was huge, like too big to be a bird. Plus, it didn't quite look like a bird. What was flying overhead looked like a large brown-colored human with wings. And while nothing also initially came from this sighting, here was a group of five separate people who would later swear that they all saw this creature. Okay, and so this isn't that long after the army base. Right. right. I mean, we we are starting, like that first sighting is on November 1st, and here we're only to November 12th. Gotcha. On November 14th, 1966, things were amped up a notch concerning this moth-like creature. This one happened about an hour east of Parkersburg and about 90 miles away from Point Pleasant in Salem, West Virginia. A man, an avid hunter named Newell Partridge, was watching television when his German Shepherd bandit started going crazy, barking on the front porch. It was around 10 p.m. At that point, Partridge's television went completely dark and then came back on with an eerie pattern. Outside, Partridge heard these odd sounds. He said it was almost like the whining of a generator. And that was when Bandit began howling. Partridge grabbed a flashlight and went outside himself to look around, and he ends up looking in the direction that the dog is howling, which is toward the barn. And that's when he saw something. Two red glowing eyes, mm. so big that they could have been bicycle reflectors. But these weren't, so these were not like the small beady eyes of an animal. Could they have been some type of reflector, though? He Well, I mean, this was his barn, and he didn't have oh, anything so parked know. over there. Yeah. yeah. And this was something. And remember, he's been an avid hunter his whole life. Whatever these were the eyes of, it was something that he had never seen before. Hmm. Bandit actually jumped off the porch and ran toward the barn. And Partridge is yelling for Bandit to stop. And when the dog didn't, Partridge went back inside to grab a shotgun because he was going to head toward the barn himself. And this is a man, right? Avid hunter. He is used to hunting large prey. He is used to hunting at night and who obviously was not scared to open the door and look outside. But as he started towards the barn after he grabbed his shotgun, he was so overcome with a sense of fear that it stopped him in his tracks and he went back inside, convincing himself that, you know, the dog had been hunting with him before the dog would be fine. Does the dog die? Well, perhaps. So he's telling himself, this is a good hunting dog. He knows how to protect himself. And Partridge was so unnerved by this feeling that he slept with his shotgun right beside the bed. The next morning, 
Partridge, you know, with the light of day, he's feeling better. He went on the front porch and realized Bandit never came back. So in the safety of this morning light, Partridge made his way to the barn where he had last seen Bandit and where he had seen the two red eyes. There, in the mud, were Bandit's paw prints going round and round in a circle and never going anywhere else. But Bandit had disappeared. Or was taken. Okay, so I can... First off, that's extremely sad. But now I can kind of see the connection with the possible UFO and this possible Mothman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there's these strange things. Mm-hmm. The next evening, November 15th, 1966, two young couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette, were out for a night of driving. They were driving in what is called the TNT area of Point Pleasant, which is this remote wooded area about six miles outside of, ta- outside of town. And that name, the TNT area, it might seem odd, but during World War II, more than 8,000 acres here in Point Pleasant had been part of an ammunition manufacturing facility. Hmm where they made and stored explosives, hence TNT area. Those explosives were housed in underground igloos, and they it actually looks like an igloo built into a mound, even though they were all man-made. So, like, they planted grass over it so you wouldn't be able, like, an aerial view. You wouldn't know what was oh. there. And I, I put some pictures Um it, it looks really creepy now because after yeah, the war it was do. abandoned and it was later deemed severely contaminated from all the hazardous yeah. byproducts from the manufacturing and of the manufacturing. So I'm sharing with Maggie these pictures and Sleuth Hounds, she can attach them hopefully to our Patreon so you can see them too. But it looks very creepy after its abandonment. Yeah, it looks like a place you would go to be murdered. Yeah, it does. So as the four were driving along, Linda looked outside of the car and she saw two large glowing red eyes. She said they were about two inches in diameter and about six inches apart. And she saw them just up ahead. So all four of them now are peering into the night and they all see the same thing. Roger slammed on his brakes because whatever this was, it was in the road just up ahead. So none of them know what it is. They are all terrified. And the headlights are now shining on what appears to be a creature that was six to seven feet tall with red eyes as big as automobile taillights. It looked like a huge man, but had wings tucked behind its back. And they said the eyes were almost hypnotic. Oh, so kind of like... I don't know, I picture, like, flies being able to hypnotize Mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. Like that, yeah. And all of a sudden, this thing leaped straight up in the air with its wings spread. Linda screamed. Roger stepped on the gas and sped away as fast as he could, because now it's not in the road in front of him, right? So he's speeding along. All of the passengers, they're looking in their rear view like the window, they start yelling, realizing that the creature was following them. 
it was like gliding, not flapping its wings, just gliding so through the air after them. Confused with the UFO or no? Um, I don't think no. Okay. Uh, Roger actually looks down at his speedometer, and he was doing a hundred miles per hour, and the creature was staying right with him. Wow. This creature was making a sound, like a squeaking sound, like a large mouse. So Roger went as fast as he could straight towards town, and right near the city limits, they spotted a dead dog on Uh, the side of the road. Yeah. Is it Bandit? Well, it could be. And that was just about the place where the creature stopped following them. So So do we think, like, Mothman is, like, a giant bat? Because that's the kind of vibe he's giving me. It's something like that, yeah. So this foursome went straight to the police station, and they reported to Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead what they had seen and what they had experienced. And the officer actually took them seriously, Maggie, because these were good kids, and they were clearly terrified. Like, this is not some joke. Yeah. So the officers at the station separated the four of them and had them recount what had happened, and they all said the same things. Halstead took Roger with him to drive back to the TNT area so Roger could point out the location of the of the siding and all of that. And if I were Roger, I'd be like, can I just describe it to you mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't have to go back? And when they went back, the dog's carcass was gone. Interesting. And while the two didn't see the creature again while they were out... Halstead, who was trying to talk to dispatch back at the station, couldn't hear them because the radio kept making a loud sound, like a gargling, like a record player playing at 10 times speed. Everyone who had seen something over the past two weeks felt like something bad was going to happen. Yeah, it's so really weird. Uh So many random things. Right. So... This makes multiple people now who've seen something like the Mothman. And then one, Derenberger, who was experiencing something else otherworldly. But things were about to get even more bizarre and seemingly interconnected. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. So Keel, in his book about the Mothman, and he believes that the two are in some way interrelated, the Mothman and the UFOs, he shares another sighting that happened on the same night as Derenberger's. And remember, he's the one who saw cold. During the mm-hmm. process of writing his book, Keel actually befriended a local respected journalist reporter for the Athens Messenger named Mary Heyer. And as Keel was completing his research on the Mothman, he and Hire actually worked together, piecing the information that each one of them had been told throughout the time span of the Mothman sightings. So why 
hire? Why pair with her? Because she was the journalist who first reported on the sightings themselves. Her story was published on Wednesday, November 16th, 1966. There on the front page was the headline, Winged Red-Eyed Thing Chases Point Couples Across Countryside. And here's how the article started. Quote, What stands six feet tall has wings, two big red eyes six inches apart, and glides along behind an auto at 100 miles an hour? Don't know? Well, neither do the four Point Pleasant residents who were chased by a weird man-like thing Tuesday night, end quote. And because it was reported publicly, that is why this sighting with this these two young couples, is widely recognized as the first official sighting of the Mothman, even though, as Keel's research showed, there were other sightings in the weeks just prior. Sleuthhounds, I know we ask you all to trust us a lot, but seriously, you have to trust me on this one. You need a Blendjet 2 in your life. I have used mine nearly every single day since I got it over the holidays. We cannot say enough about this product. Blendjet 2 is portable. It fits in a cup holder and this means you can save precious time in the morning or before going to the gym by blending your smoothies or protein shakes in your office or in your car. Good things come in small packages, sleuth hounds, because even though the Blendjet 2 is small, it is powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is also whisper quiet, so when that midday urge for iced coffee hits, you won't disturb the people in the cubicle next to you at work. Plus, it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. And best of all, the Blendjet 2 cleans itself. What more could you ask for? Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With more than 30 colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement just about any style. So what are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today. Be sure to use the promo code COFFEEINCASES12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. If you have a smoothie lover in your life, you want to make that New Year's resolution to build muscle and lose fat, whatever the reason, blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code COFFEEINCASES12, all one word, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. They guarantee you'll love it, and so do we, or your money back. Shop today by going to the link or clicking the link in our show notes and get the best deal ever. There are so many times when I want to do something digitally like read a book or take notes, but I miss the feel of real paper. I've tried journaling on my iPad, which is a great New Year's resolution, by the way, but the feel of the screen didn't give me the same satisfaction as writing on paper until I got the paper like. Paperlike is a screen protector that makes an iPad feel exactly like you're writing or drawing on paper. It is perfect for note takers, journalers, and artists, for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. 
The surface of the paper-like is coated using nanodots, these tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precisions when you drag your Apple Pencil across the screen. And every paper-like comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need to replace it. It is exactly what I needed to allow me to find joy in journaling on my iPad because now it actually feels like paper. To pick up your paper-like, head over to paperlike.com forward slash coffee and cases. Click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. From now until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost with every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. Are you ready to do more with your iPad? Head over to paperlike.com forward slash coffee and cases to get started. But back to this Mary Hire. As Keel was researching and they were putting their shared information together, Hire related to Keel that on the same night as Derenberger, someone else saw something. An wow. eld yes, an elderly man had come to see Hire, saying that he just had to tell someone what he had seen. He said that he and a coworker had been driving back toward his home in Point Pleasant from Marietta, Ohio. And Marietta, by the way, is only about 13 miles north of Parkersburg, where Derenberger had the contact with cold. Okay. They also saw an elongated UFO flying low, and it stopped to block the road in front of their vehicle. A man got out of the object. He was wearing a long, dark overcoat, smiling widely, and he kept his arms crossed the whole time with his hands tucked into his armpits. However, unlike with Derenberger, where the UFO kind of rose up straight in the air so the other traffic didn't see it, mm -hmm. with, like, an increase in traffic... The man who had gotten out of the UFO actually got back into the craft and disappeared upward, at which point the two men zoomed away. And initially, so they, they didn't have any conversation. With right, him then? right. They didn't have a telepathic conversation with him like Darren Berger did. And initially, they had actually decided we're not going to tell anybody about this, right? They're like, nobody's going to believe us anyway. But what led this elderly man to come forward was that he couldn't sleep afterward. And when he did sleep, he had awful nightmares that made him afraid to go to sleep. Hmm. So he took to drinking. And this was something that this man had never done. So he thought maybe telling somebody what happened would ease his mind. And of course, he goes to hide because remember, she might believe him. She wrote this mm -hmm. article about the Mothman. Not long after this man came to hire to tell his story, though, his son called and asked her not to print the story. So she hadn't. Now, later, when Hire is, like, telling about this event to Keel, right, because she's saying, oh, my gosh, this Derenberger guy saw this. There was an elderly man who told me almost an identical story. So she's telling this to Keel, and he wants to confirm the details. So they call this elderly man. He confirmed every single detail, just as Hire had recalled him telling it to her. But he asked that if they printed the story, that his name not be used. When he was asked why, the man replied that, quote, the scientist 
had told him not to get involved with this thing, end quote. Mm, so, of course, scientists. yeah, Hire and Keel, they're like, uh, exactly what you said, Maggie, what scientists? But all he could remember was that the man said he was from Ohio. And since the man so, had told Mary and his own immediate family about the incident, Hire and Keel asked how this scientist had known about his experience. Because he he's only told Mary and his immediate family. So they're like, how did the scientist know about what you saw? And the elderly man says, I have no idea how he knew. Maybe he was an alien aboard the craft. Could be. Or this is one of those like men in black stories. Right? Who, if you've seen the movie, you right? If you've come into contact, they want to like erase your memory. Mm-hmm crazy yeah before the end of november maggie so many more people would come forward with stories about the mothman creature at 4 45 a.m on november 17th a local music teacher woke up to her small dog whining and barking like crazy she saw outside her window what she thought was a ufo with flashing green and red lights and that same day, a local 17-year-old boy said a huge bird man creature had followed his car for nearly a mile. And this chase happened right in front of the music teacher's home. So I think that's why Keel thinks that they're related because there are similar, like there are sightings of both things around the same areas. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On November 18th, Two firefighters were in the TNT area and stated that they saw what they thought was a huge bird, but it was unlike anything that they had ever seen. Even more people came forward. Some were saying that they saw what was the biggest bird they'd ever seen, like the firefighters. Others said that what they saw looked like a man with wings, like more like a man because of the muscular legs and not, it didn't have like skinny bird legs. But one thing that they all knew was that this was not a bird. The red glowing eyes were far too large to be either a barred owl or a sandhill crane. Because those are the two most popular speculations by people who are like, there has to be a logical explanation and it's a bird. The eyes are far too big to be either one of those things. Five more people together in a group saw the bird-like creature. And while they stood there, hypnotized by its eyes, they said it oh, turned. Again, the hypnotic yeah, eyes. Yeah. They said it turned and ran away after a moment. And another elderly man opened the front door when his dog started going crazy. And there in front of him was a large, gray, shadowy figure with glowing red eyes. The man said he felt terrified and hypnotized at the same time, and that he went into almost like a trance-like state and lost track of time. A few days later, a woman was arriving home with her brother and her three-year-old daughter, and they were unloading the car to go inside when her brother pointed to something in the air. 
she reported that she caught sight of something out of the corner of her eye and paralyzed in a trance-like state fell on her daughter. But the creature was no longer in the air, Maggie. It was right there in her yard and coming closer. And feeling that she and her daughter would die right there if she didn't move, she was finally able to gain enough strength to get up, grab her daughter, and run with all of her might to the door of her home. And even though she got inside, the thing was still coming. It was Mm. on her porch. And then... It was peering in the window. Yes. She called the police, but the creature was gone by the time they arrived. This woman was so scarred by this experience that she had to get counseling. Oh, yeah. Sounds traumatizing. Yes. On November 27th, a woman named Connie was on her way home from church. And unlike most of the sightings, this one was in the daylight. 10.30 a.m. and about 10 miles north of the TNT area, Connie saw a creature that stood over seven feet tall. It was gray and had red glowing eyes. She, too, reported that the eyes, when they were focused on her, made her feel like she was in some sort of a trance. What broke the trance was the creature opening its wings, which when opened appeared to be about 10 feet in width, and it seemed to defy physics and jumped straight up without flapping its wings and started making its way toward her car, staring at her the whole time. So it's a little aggressive. Yes, she floored the gas, and that was why she felt she was able to get away. Wow. Maggie, during the winter of 1966 into 1967, more than 100 people reported encounters with this creature or potentially multiple creatures of the same kind. And I say that because this is one theory as to why like that one ran away while others Mm. chased people. Right. And then some reported the creature as brown. Some reported it as gray. But Keel spoke with many of these people and was told details that corroborated the stories told by others, details that were not reported in the papers. And what's more, Maggie, many of these people who say that they saw the Mothman and the UFOs for weeks afterward suffered from what is called Welder's conjunctivitis or Klieg conjunctivitis, which is something like pink eye, but it's caused by prolonged exposure to ultraviolet light. Ooh, so maybe like the eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And this condition is something that, like, if this experience were chalked up to, like, mass hysteria, that would be nearly impossible to replicate among that many people. Hmm. So mass hysteria seems to be off the table. And there were other happenings during this period as well, according to Keel's book. For example, a young couple had driven into a rural area for a makeout session when they saw a floating blue light and seemingly went into a trance. When they both snapped out of it, thinking it had only been about two minutes, they looked at the clock to realize that it had been two hours. Wow. Still others received phone calls that were only beeping or screeching noises, and their televisions were also affected. 
Like, remember um, the guy with Bandit, his TV goes black and then, right, mm-hmm. it's making weird noises. That happened to a lot of people. And many of Keel's own phone calls with people who had had sightings, he tried to record them. But when Keel would play them back, he would find that they were only static when oh, he would so go like back to try to listen to them. radio. Mm-hmm. There had been months of sightings, Maggie, before Keel arrived in town to try to document it. And when he did, he could sense the trepidation in the air. Everybody was on edge. Everybody was anxious. And again, everybody felt that this thing was just a sign that something worse was coming. Linda Scarberry had to get sedatives to sleep. Connie wouldn't go on camera even up to 50 years after her experience because she was still so terrified. And her now husband went on record saying that it it even took forever for her to tell him about what had happened to her because she was so shaken by it. And even the National Guard, as well as the state police, actually came to the Point Pleasant area to search for what could be causing this panic. So if it's not real, like, why why did they come? On January 6th, 1967, the Christensen family had an encounter. They said a man around six foot six inches and weighing around 300 pounds showed up at their home. He wore a long black coat and a furry Russian-style hat. He said he was from the Heirs Bureau and that his questions might lead to the family receiving an inheritance. His appearance was a little bit off-putting to the family members, though, who noticed that this man's head was strangely large and he had widespread bulging eyes, only one of which moved, leading them to believe that the other one was a glass eye. His shoes had very thick soles, and they noted a long, thick green wire coming up from his sock and into his sickly pale skin on his leg. They said he spoke in clipped phrases like a robot. And the Christensen's dog barked at this man at first, like wouldn't stop barking until the man turned and like whispered and spoke directly to the dog, after which it stayed calm the whole rest of the time. I'm going to need him to come do that to Willow. (laughs) When the family offered him food, he declined, but he did say that in about 10 minutes, he would take some water. His robot voice wheezed out as he asked about the schools that the patriarch of the family attended, if he had any scars and questions like that. And all the while, the man's face grew more and more red. About 10 minutes into the conversation, the the man asked for a large glass of water, which he gulped down while taking a large yellow pill. So I wonder if this is like concealing his alien identity. Right. I think that's what they think now. When he finished his questions, he thanked the family and got up to leave. And they noticed that as he walked, his shoes made a squishing sound like they were wet. Once he got outside, like there's no car visible, he raises his arm and a black Cadillac Hmm. without its headlights on came to pick him up and drove off into the night again without headlights. And there were five witnesses in the family, yeah, to this experience. 
On March 5th, 1967, marks another phenomenon. A Red Cross bloodmobile was heading toward Huntington, West Virginia, when they saw a bright white object off the side of the road that began heading toward them. The nurse, who was in the passenger seat, screamed, and the driver sped up. They saw a metal arm coming out of what looked like a UFO and coming toward the bloodmobile, and another arm came out from the other side of this craft, trying to reach around to the other side of the vehicle. Oncoming traffic finally, luckily, caused the UFO to forget its plight and fly away, but the driver and the nurse immediately went to the police to report what had happened. And I guess it's at this point that I should also mention that Keel noticed a pattern of the Mothman. Now, I mentioned the dog, right, and its mm-hmm. carcasses there, potentially drained of blood. Here we have this UFO going after a bloodmobile. And there was a pattern that Keel noted that the Mothman appeared almost primarily to women when the women were on their period. Hmm. In April 1967... Even John Keel, while he was with Mary Heyer, swear that they saw a UFO. Keel, unafraid, I don't understand that, I would be terrified, used his headlights to flash in Morse code the word descend. And the Mm -hmm. UFO began its descent, falling in a leaf-like falling motion back and forth, before getting spooked by something and then taking off again. I would be like, thank the mm, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, Keel says he woke up with conjunctivitis. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So all while Keel was investigating, like I mentioned at the beginning, he tried to keep his eyewitnesses private. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't share names. He didn't want Sorry, them to speak boy. with one another. Yeah. He would even often drop by to see them unannounced to make sure that they weren't making things up. But people were continually calling him throughout 1967. But near the end of 1967, Keel was actually getting more and more communication from the people that he had interviewed. So it was normal that they would call him and they would stay in contact. But it was like, it was weird because all of them were calling him all the time near the Mm. end of 1967. The people who had, he had meticulously kept apart were calling to tell him similar things. Weird things even began happening to Keel. Like, he would make a split-second decision to stay at a hotel, and in the five minutes that it took him to unload his car and make his way to the front desk to check in, the clerk, after hearing his name when he's asking for a room, would say, oh, I have messages for you. Like, these people somehow knew that he was going to be there before he was there. This is weird. mm -hmm. He kept getting information from his contacts, and these are all people who saw the UFO or the Mothman, that some huge disaster was going to happen on the Ohio River and that people would die. Hmm. That was one thing that they kept telling him. But they were saying other things, too. Like, they were saying the Pope was going to be killed by a man in a dark coat with a dagger. They told him that when the president would commence the tree lighting ceremony that year, that the whole country would suffer a blackout. And 
So these are the things they're telling him. And the Pope was actually about to take a trip. So Kiel is watching all of the coverage of the Pope with bated breath. But nothing happened. This is crazy. Yeah. Not taking any chances. Kiel actually wrote a letter on November 3rd, 1967. So now we're almost, we're right at a year after the first sightings, to Mary Heyer to say that he had reason to believe that there would be a disaster in the Point Pleasant area. Maybe a plant on the river would blow up or it would burn down. But weeks and weeks went by and nothing happened. So now he's thinking, okay, maybe all this chatter and the similar messages, maybe it's just some misinformation. Around December 13th, the traffic lights on the Silver Bridge connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Gallipolis, Ohio, began malfunctioning. Mary Heyer saw two men climbing on the bridge, and she remembered them because they were dressed oddly, like in checkered coats, black trousers, and ordinary shoes, so not dressed for the winter weather. So she's thinking, are they fixing the lights? Like, are they checking out the bridge? What are these men doing? That's on December Mm -hmm. 13th. On December 15th, 1967, 13 months to the day after the first reported Mothman sighting, again, Keel was closely watching the television. The president was about to light the Christmas tree, and Keel had his flashlight ready for the blackout that he was sure would ensue. Right? Because that's what the chatter said. Mm -hmm. President Johnson lit the tree. The lights stayed on. So again, Keel is thinking, okay, maybe this information, it's just wrong, right? This information that Mm -hmm. I've been given. But just then, a noise on the television signaled breaking news. The Silver Bridge, yep, the Silver Bridge spanning the Ohio River from Point Pleasant to Gallipolis had collapsed during rush hour traffic. (gasps) 31 vehicles holding 64 people fell into the icy waters below. 44 died in the collapse. An additional two have never been found. Oh, that's a fear of mine, for real. The entire tragedy took place in less than 60 seconds. So was this the tragedy that the Mothman had portended? Many people think so, because the sightings of the Mothman fizzled away after this catastrophe. On paper... The cause of the bridge collapse was that there was a cracked I-beam, a defect only 2.5 millimeters deep that had caused the entire bridge to fail. And those who believe in numerology find it interesting that the defect was found on joint C-13. The details of the failure are written in paragraph 13 of the report, and the disaster happened 13 months to the day of the first sighting. Was this all just a big media storm and all hogwash? Some say so. Another example of mass hysteria, of people buying into a myth. Others point out that even though the plan was foiled, on November 27, 1970, the Pope was nearly assassinated by a man in black who tried to kill him with a dagger. Eyewitnesses reported that the man who tried to kill him 
seemed to be in a trance. So is it all fake? Enough to discount the whole thing? Or will you even allow yourself to believe a tenth of it is true? After all, even that tiny bit, a kernel of truth, is enough to make the whole thing terrifying. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.